Hello and welcome to the third edition of ReporterCast for August 2022. We have with us a man who is almost ubiquitous in three very important British power bubbles. That of Westminster, as he is a long-standing Conservative Party activist. Then that of the legal profession. He is a solicitor and director with Rosenblatt Law, dealing with a lot of international and complex corporate cases. And lastly, a City of London finance industry insider by virtue of his job and his passion for cryptocurrency. And uh, he's also an OBE, which is uh, the Order of the British Empire, which was awarded to him by the Queen herself. Unusually, however, thanks to his uh, discreet nature, he is not well known outside of these three circles. And he's not on social media either, though he probably deserves to be. If you want to find him in his natural habitat, look for a guy in red Converse sneakers walking somewhere along the Strand. Alternatively, he may be in a, a private members club somewhere ar- uh, around the Mall with a sharp suit on, or in court, now that the lockdowns are finished. The name of our special guest for today is, of course, Tom Spiller. Uh, Tom, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for that uh, very kind introduction, Matty. And um, before we get into the questions, I would like to briefly say many thanks to H5 Strategies, an executive and political advisory group based in Bucharest and specialized in the regions of Eastern Europe, Central Asia and Africa. Now, Tom, before we start talking about current affairs and stuff, um, would you give us a bit of personal background? How did you end up working in, in the law? How did you end up looking at crypto and caring about crypto? And um, how did you become a Conservative Party activist? Oh, thank you very much. So I suppose it's um, it's a natural journey from my perspective. So when I was a, a kid, I always had a very strong sense of um, public service and, and duty. Uh, I've been very proud of, of my country, its history and its institutions. And I suppose... Um, that's what led me to study the subjects that I wanted to study at school. And one of those was politics. Um, it turned out that I was uh, relatively relatively good uh, at politics uh, and history. Um, so I, uh, I continued studying it at A-level and, and you know, university after that. Um, and uh, one would say I've been studying it ever since, really, um, mainly because of its sort of basis in group psychology and individual psychology and of course uh, this this country's uh, history and so from from that I suppose it's only natural that I wanted to study the laws of this country as well um, and uh, that's kind of led me into the law um, one thing I probably should say about my, my sort of apprenticeship in politics in my early years I, I found it very very easy to um, to speak to the office of my my local MP, which is uh, Kenneth Clark, um, a Nottingshire, Nottinghamshire MP, and of course, great sort of beast of of uh, politics from the sort of eighties and nineties, um, and uh, and yeah, it's it's all a virtuous circle. I, I suppose my love of cryptocurrency, uh, which I refer to as my only only real hobby, um, kind of spawns from all of that. Really, it's just just so so interesting. Um, and I see it as an enormous opportunity for, for people of my generation um, and perhaps one of the few opportunities left, really. Um, but there we are. It's a bit of a rambling journey, but that's how I think I, I went from A to B to C. Right. Well, that's quite interesting. And uh, just clarifying, um, what what generation is that? What year were you born? <laughs> how? Yes, exactly. How young slash old am I? Uh, well, I, I would say millennial. So I believe the term is geriatric millennial. I was born in the sort of early uh, early 80s. Oh, right. Okay. I was born in the late 80s. <laughs> and um, your OB, how did you get that? Yeah, I was awarded that. My official citation is for public and political services. Um, I, I received that, I think, as a result of uh, recognition of the fact that I've been involved in grassroots politics in this country since I was 16 years old. So that's, that's quite a long time now. Um, and I think it was more a recognition of the organisations and the grassroots elements of the Conservative Party that I was so proud to be part of and to represent as well. I stood for election um, 
in an internal party uh, competition and I was elected to the board of the party, uh, which I, I was sat on uh, from 2016. So shortly after Mrs May became prime minister, uh, right up to um, Boris in 2019, Boris just being uh, elected as leader of the Conservative Party. And they were relatively, um, let's say, eventful years in British politics uh, and I had a, a first-hand view um, as a sort of volunteer and it was uh, it was quite the education there was nothing in any of the textbooks that I'd read before that that prepared me for that. Right well I can uh, I, can, I can already see a memoir coming down the road but um, you're just much too young for any of that so let's move on to the next question. Uh, the, the cryptocurrency market is not doing very well unfortunately and you said to me in a previous chat that this is the fourth crypto winter now shall i take this that uh, the market might be rebounding that that your opinion is that the mounting the market might be rebounding are you one of those people who sees bitcoin reaching a hundred thousand dollars because i'm a skeptic although i can see a limited purpose for this asset class and um, unlike some uh, Financial Times uh, columnists, I'm not in the Ponzi scheme camp either. I do think it, it's not a true Ponzi scheme. Yeah, absolutely. Um, lots to unpackage there. Yes, there have been, there've been previous winters before. Um, how many, you agree, sort of have, have already been, been and gone uh, depends on your definition of it. But, you know, it, everybody knows there are ups and downs in crypto. And I firmly believe that as time progresses, there'll be more adoption, both in this country and overseas. Um, and crypto will survive and thrive and have its future winters as well. Um, and that's the fun of the fair, really, when it comes to crypto. Uh, I think anyone who, who gets involved in it thinking it's only ever going to go up hasn't done their research really and is, is prob probably shouldn't be in crypto in the first place um in terms of the the bitcoin reaching 100 uh, 100k um i personally am not that excited about bitcoin uh, i am excited about everything else i think that the bitcoin phenomenon is driven by two things really first of all um the american or almost pathological distrust of, of the state and, and all all things emanating from the state you, you've seen that recently in in relation to just just the enormous amount of, of commentary that comes with you know the current phenomenon of inflation in america um and that that's sort of here to stay i think um and then the second part of, of the bitcoin story really is uh, people from the traditional world of finance seeing something that they can speculate on and sort of piling in um, to that. I don't think personally, you know, I, I know that there's a significant number of uh, ATM machines in America where you can walk into a Walmart, um, plug in your uh, Bitcoin address and withdraw dollars and then go and do your daily shop. Um, but I do think I do think that will be fairly limited to America. I can't see a lot of appetite for that. The, the Bitcoin alternatives I see as much more useful. They uh, deploy smart contracts, which means you can use it to do stuff um, such as ticketing, membership, credentials, and you know what's what's loosely termed as unregulated securities. So, for example, you could you could start a business uh, that's entirely online and issue participation rights in that. Although I know. The law around that is uh, is a little uh, controversial, um, but yeah, I, I just see crypto as having a bright future, frankly. Right. Well, that's quite interesting, and I have noticed uh, commercials, adverts uh, on the Tube Network in London selling concert tickets and theatre tickets via blockchain-enabled apps. So you can see changes in in society already from from this world. Um, it, it is interesting. I think it'd be an enormous, enormous boost for the world of the arts as well. I mean, there's a lot has been said uh, about the democratisation of the art world um, by allowing artists in particular to market straight to a, a global audience rather than having to depend on you know, whether or not they're fashionable enough to appear in, in particular galleries. 
Um, so I do, I agree with what you're saying. I, I think that the cultural impact of this new technology is potentially huge. I mean, a, lo- a lot of what gets people excited about crypto and, um, you know, the world of traditional finance sort of eyes, eyes the, uh, the increases in value of crypto uh, greedily. Um, I think a lot of that is based on the fact that um, ordinary payments um, and, and settlements seem to take a long time. Sorry, settlement of, of equity shares from, from the world of sort of share dealing seems to take a long time to do with existing technology. Whereas with blockchain technology, it will be fairly quick and, and instantaneous. I mean, you you tell me whether or not speeding up the world of trading shares will make things better or worse. Um, but in terms of the speed at which, you know, it could power and speed up existing technologies, I think I think that's a really big impact that, that it will also have. And that, that sort of draws in another tribe of people that are interested in crypto, if you like. Yeah, that's interesting also because it would um, increase productivity, I suppose, make things cheaper and more efficient. And uh, the economy is a little bit stuck. In, in the West, at least, because it just can't seem to to boost productivity. So that that could uh, it could help. But all of this is outside of um, of the speculative bubble, as you say. This is more about um, uh, technology and um, and uh, incremental gains. Now, one thing I noticed about crypto that I wasn't expecting that quite I found quite surprising was the positive role it it played in Ukraine's resistance against the Russian invasion. Everybody in my line of work in journalism was expecting crypto to be the vehicle for Russian money laundering uh, to avoid sanctions. And to be fair, that that is possible, but we haven't seen big stories around that. The bigger stories were that uh, the Ukrainian... Uh, resistance was raising money using crypto and they were issuing nfts and um, there was also this sort of crypto inspired um, uh, movement of, of the nafo fellas the 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 dogs uh, that um, that certain uh, people online used to to make fun of, uh, of russian propaganda so all of that i thought was broadly speaking a good thing for ukraine and a good thing for the for the crypto community i just wonder if you heard any any commentary around that yeah absolutely absolutely again again lots of interesting stuff there to unpackage uh, matty so i think it's really interesting that um crypto's uh wild adolescence um has given it this bad reputation um, such that, as you say, you know, the knee-jerk reaction from media is to look for the bad things, in particular this idea of money laundering. You know, so, somehow, um, perhaps due to a lack of understanding of the technology um, and how it interfaces with the existing banking system, um, that somehow it can only be used for bad. Um, whereas, you know, the reality is, f- from, from the beginning of, of, you know, modern banking till today, you know, you, you tell me which financial system has facilitated more and larger uh, criminal money movements, uh, the world of crypto or HSBC? Uh, well, I'm sorry, I probably shouldn't name a bank there. <laughs> That's a right to reply. Yeah, or, or the, <laughs> all the modern world of banking. I, of course, mention HSBC because they were particularly uh, reprimanded over what was seen to be their facilitation of, of movement of money for Mexican drug costs. Yeah, with the Mexican stuff. No, that's true. That's well documented. So I think we can get away with it. Yeah, I didn't mean to pick on them. Um, my, my point is that, you know, it is it is ridiculous um, to say to a new, a new market, a new technology, a new subsector of the economy, you must be, your standards must be far higher than the standards of the essential banking system, which the state props up, facilitates, and allows to take enormous rewards from the economy for its position in society. It is it is ludicrous to, to expect the world of crypto to be wholly um, whiter than white when we don't ask those standards of people uh, who are far more part of society. 
Um, I think in terms of you know Russians trying to evade sanctions using crypto, it's 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 ludicrous. I'm afraid it's ludicrous. You know, as an idea that the liquidity in the world of crypto is is not sufficient to justify any one of you know the top twenty or fifty. Uh, richest men in Russia or, or richest people on the sanctions list, um, allowing them to to somehow liquidate um, their holding their their real life cash or or assets into crypto and then get it out somewhere into into the Western banking system. That that's simply fantasy island. Um, in terms of the positive role that crypto has played in Ukraine, you are absolutely right, and I for one was very very. Uh, proud to have donated some ethereum to the ukrainian army's uh, official um uh, donations address um and the ukrainians are very far ahead They're, they are a tech forward country and they have been racing crypto for many years um and they they were able to demonstrate in terms of you know ration packs radios helmets what those crypto donations had done for, for their army for their country um, so that was that was just a fantastic, and again that goes back to what I was saying about speed, uh, frankly, of, of the way these things can operate, and and the the underlying blockchain technology as a as a absolutely potentially dominant payment system. Um, it just shows how much how much good it does. But I think a broader point there um, is that crypto and particularly stable coins, which I hope your readers readers will have heard of. Um, I'm sorry, they're listeners, of course. This is an audio format. Um, I, you know, these stable coins are used the world over, particularly in developing countries, particularly in countries where there is economic failure, um, you know, on, on a mass scale. These stable coins exist in spaces of state failure. So, for example, Argentina, uh, terrible, terrible um, currency inflation, stable coins, very, very popular there. In Ukraine, um, stablecoin uh, USDC was was so popular, and, and its its value is one dollar. So it was so popular, and people needed it to replace the uh, financial system that had been destroyed by the Russian invasion so badly that they were prepared to buy it for up to one dollar ten cents. Um, and where where the local financial system had crumbled because of uh, hostile Russian action. Um, the world of crypto stepped in and, and helped those people. You know, it's the same in Turkey. Uh, it's the same in Nigeria. It's the same in, in all these uh, countries. Um, there is this phenomenal sort of grassroots democratizing um, aspect to it. That I mean, you know, I could go on forever about this. I'll, I'll stop. You get my point. Um, but uh, but yeah, I think there's a, there's another really interesting point you made, which, which was a crypto inspired movement. Um, so crypto is inherently cultural. Um, and I would just say there are there are sort of three tribes in, in my view that are attracted to crypto. Um, the first is the international sort of element, the unbanked of the world, the people who need something that is not their native uh, currency. There are the bankers of the world who want better technology so as to do whatever they're doing, positive or or otherwise uh, faster. Um, at higher speeds and and then there is everyone else frankly and, and I think crypto itself um, is effectively a form of social media um, the community aspect to it and the sort of social interaction part of it cannot be overstated and, and for that reason I do think crypto is very different um, and I don't think it should be treated the same as uh, a currency or a share or, or any um, financial instrument that's come before it. Uh, sorry, that's another very long rambly answer, mate. But hopefully, I've uh, hopefully I've <laughs> answered the question and said something of interest. No, no, you did, you did, and it's actually something that uh, I want to expand a little bit on because there's a fourth tribe being attracted to crypto, and that's central bankers and regulators now, but not for the same reasons. And um, I think mostly they're looking at these uh, speculative um, versions of crypto uh, rather than uh, you know the the fixed version stable coins but of course there are proposals for regulating stable coins as well now CBDC uh, central bank digital currency is under consideration by all the major central banks at least at uh, at sort of rhetorical level at the moment um 
What do you think? Good idea, bad idea? End of crypto as we know it? <laughs> um, I don't know. I I think that uh, CBDCs will never replace um, crypto. Um, I don't think they can compete or should compete with stable coins either. Um, and I would describe myself as a skeptic in terms of are they necessary at all. Um, the reason why I think stable coins are, are good is that they provide, you know, to the extent that electronic money, electronic banking and transfer of cash isn't, you know, that we have today is not sufficient. Um, I mean, it, it, it demonstrably is, right? It's been it's been used for, for, for years and years and years to, to very, very high degrees of success. To the extent that that's not, you know, no longer acceptable and can be improved upon, then stable coins do that. And that is the private sector getting enormous levels of investment uh, from sources of wealth and they can provide that service, um, you know, on a private basis. Uh, and, you know, the, the population will benefit from that and the government can regulate it uh, and benefit benefit from tax revenues and the rest of it. That's That would seem to tick all the boxes that you would need to tick um, in terms of CBDC, I don't think we need a CBDC. As someone who, you know, as I said, was I was born in the early '80s and, and have seen various um, infrastructure projects uh, commissioned by the state, um, I really, I really don't see why we would try and take on those projects on a public basis when they've already been done privately. I don't, I don't see there to be anything to be gained there. I don't, I don't think the state would do it more effectively uh, than what's already been done. Um, in terms of my general skepticism about it, I, I can see how there's a lot of talk at the moment about central banks wanting to use it at a uh, macro level as between themselves and the banks that they license. Um, but I just, I just, you know, perhaps it's my political biases, which are very much on the record. Um, I just don't think that the government will be able to stop there. I think we've seen already, and this is an extreme example, of course, but the totalitarian state in China is already using programmable money to effectively reduce people to serfdom. And I really, I'm not saying that would happen here or actually in any other country, um, but it only takes, you know, it is a slippery slope and... I can see how the state would, you know, were there to be another event on the scale of COVID. Um, I can see how voices in, in Whitehall would quite reasonably say, we need a stimulus, we need to get it out there now, let's use programmable money issued by us. Um, that would then create a system where, you know, it is spread a lot wider uh, than it was originally touted, you know, to be used for. And... At that point, the genie's out of the bottle and you could potentially have all kinds of interference in in people's access to their own money. Right. Well, that's interesting. It's a very interesting point. The mission creep of, uh, of CBDC, inherent really in CBDC, because it's programmable. But isn't, isn't there a, a counter-argument that precisely because all of these um, totalitarian di di dictatorship-style governments are doing it, Shouldn't we be doing it in a democracy just not necessarily to implement it straight away, but just to have it as a technology ready to go in the back pocket in case, you know, the yuan becomes uh, the the CBDC of the world somehow because their economy is so big and important for, you know, for, for global trading. So um, I suppose that that would be rational, wouldn't it? That That is a very big idea there, Matty. Um let me think about that. So, potentially, I mean, I, I don't want to come across as some someone who is overly sceptical or paranoid, but I just, I just am sceptical of it because I can see um, how mission creep might happen. Do we need it to counter a potential dominance of a digital yuan? Um, it's interesting. I mean, as at right now, no. Um, and as as all these you know, rise of China narratives go, um, actually, we're okay today. That doesn't mean we'll be okay tomorrow. Um, as at right now, crypto largely was born in America. Um, and the dollar is effectively, 
its its currency really, despite the fact that it's enormously popular in um, in Southeast Asia. Uh, but that that is effective, effectively derived from the ubiquity of the, the American dollar. Um, you know, if if things were to continue and China was to continue to rise in America, continue to have relative decline, then yeah, I can I can see how you might might argue that. Um, and, I, and I don't I don't have a a slick all encompassing answer, but I do just say I start from a point where I'm slightly skeptical of institutional mission creep um, in in any totally. state apparatus. Totally fair enough. And um, now about um, uh, another side of cryptocurrency that you're involved in. Unfortunately, a lot of this cryptocurrency gets stolen by hackers. And um, when this happens, investors tend to go to the private sector, IT specialists and specialized law firms. And you've been involved in a couple of these um, uh, recovery initiatives. Uh, I just wanted to ask, have you seen much progress on the part of the state authorities trying to help people recover their stolen coins? And uh, if if the police isn't helping, what what should be done about that? Mm. So so yeah, that that's something that I come across in my practice um, as a lawyer. Um, I think the reason why so that there is hacking. You're absolutely right. There's ingenious software designers who can find a backdoor in practically anything. Um, and use it to transfer monetary value in crypto from the rightful holders to themselves. Um, but actually far more of it is simple social engineering um, frauds, uh, which, which, you know, it's just so much easier to do it because crypto is internet inherent, right? So, sorry, internet native. Um, and really it's just people who are taken in by incredibly sophisticated scams who actually perhaps just don't don't really understand what they're getting involved in um in terms of law enforcement in this country there's there's an enormous amount of, of knowledge uh, there's a chap called nick ferno who literally wrote the book who provides a lot of training to to every security service in this country um that that is interested in uh you know, making recoveries. Um, but it does seem to me that the internet is effectively currently being policed by the American authorities and uh, to a lesser extent, the Australian authorities as well, um, who both dedicated significant resources to this. Um, I don't really, I'm not really in the position of sort of advocating uh, policy, but I, I, I just say, you know, um, crypto is different. Crypto is not money. Crypto is so. So you know, beware people who tell you that it is. Frankly, um, and crypto is high risk because it takes place in this incredibly abstract uh, environment of the internet, where you can't speak to someone, you can't verify uh, their bona fides. I mean, the technology is is trustless. So so that's not where problems occur. The problems occur inside your head effectively when when you're uh, you're duped into doing something um and i'm afraid fraud very much predates crypto by a very long way indeed so it's uh, it's our inherent ability to be fooled by bad actors i'm afraid that generates the uh, the bad headlines well certainly but um you know when when you lose your money from a bank due to fraud and a lot more fraud happens in the traditional banking sector than in the crypto sector so as you say fraudsters would steal whatever whatever they can get their hands on but at least the banks have funds to compensate people for their losses or part of their losses do you think um, the crypto community should uh, should start helping people who are victims of fraud as well somehow um so I, so I have two answers to this, right? So part A and part B. So, so first of all, yes, the, the community does do a significant amount to self-police and try to help people. So you will see this when there's a big hack. As soon as it's discovered, you will see an exchange um, tweet uh, addresses that have had money stolen from and the addresses where the, the money has gone to. You will see the community of exchanges and custodians 
react to that and freeze those accounts uh, and, and do uh, whatever is in their power to return those funds. And actually, to, to an extent, it's not perfect, but to an extent, the, the community is quite good at, at self-policing. And I, I don't know if, if the traditional world of banking can, can act as quickly as that or as effectively as that. Um, but, but separately, um, no, I don't, I don't think there should be any safety net. I think the important thing about crypto is that it is very, very different. And when you step over the threshold from, you know, the, the real life world, the, the world that you know uh, and that has existed for, for many, many years into this new world of crypto, uh, there is no safety net. And, and, and the FCA is very clear, it insists uh, on, you know, very high risk warnings being placed on, on all things crypto. And that's, that's correct, I would say. Um, and one should not expect levels of protection in that world. Um, it's it's all going to be about self-education. We can't, I think someone, I heard someone say this, I can't remember who it is, but I am, I am stealing it because I'm not crediting them with it. But they said, you know, we can't much, if we're going to democratize money in the payment system in this way, you know, it won't be a good democracy without significant levels of education of the participants. Um, and that and that is my view, I have, to, I have to agree with it. Learn by doing tough love, that sort of thing, yeah? Yes, absolutely right. Right, well, let's see, let's see, because um, I have to say sometimes I'm, I'm totally on board with that, but some other, on some other days I see some, uh, some tragedies and I think, you know, this just breaks your heart, but um, you know, it's not my place to, to judge. So the next question is, um, would, would you talk a little bit about a specific scam or, or caper that, 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 that you saw or, or were involved in and what happened and how much money was stolen, how much was recovered and um, all, all of the spicy details, please? <laughs> okay, okay. Uh, a very understandable request. So obviously uh, I have to give a very boring sort of preface to this and say uh you know i have to respect the confidence of my clients so i can't really talk about uh things that aren't in the public domain i think um probably the best and most interesting answer i can give you is to talk about um pig fattening have you heard of this uh, i have not right so it... except in the romanian sense mind you which is the literal sense <laughs> so it is a, a business model of the um international criminal community uh which is new so you will be aware of uh you know i think netflix popularized the, the tinder swindler um so that is known as a romance scam um so the pig fatting is is the next iteration of that uh business model uh which uses crypto as well so again, very much behavioural, very much psychological and tapping into um, the state of mind that people, you know, the open state of mind that people have when they're on the internet. You know, it's less guarded than they would be in, in normal life. Um, and basically, in this scenario, uh, there's a romance scam initiated. So contact is initiated between the organisation and, and the potential victim. Um, there's lots of promises of, of the future and a, a golden life together. Um, you know, the, the criminal organization sort of proves itself to exist as an individual, which is just not the case. Often it's, um, they run sort of call centers with specific desks that sort of maintain relationships with specific targets. Um, and then slowly, slowly, um, the organization starts saying, oh, wow, uh, I've just had some amazing successes. Uh, trade in crypto. Uh, this is so great. We're going to have this this golden future ahead of us, and I'm I'm going to pay with it, with my uh, crypto gains. And hey, anyone can do it. I don't really have any expertise in crypto, um, and it's just it's just sort of slowly, slowly salted in. There's no push. There's no traditional request to transfer funds on the basis of some spurious sort of you know personal personal reason. Um, and then over time, they introduce them to the website. So there's a fake website that's been set up to appear as a trading platform um, that, you know, the, the fake lover sort of says they've been using successfully. Um, it's, of course, just a, t a total fraud, but the, the victim then starts trading uh, small bits of crypto. Uh, the website tells 
the victim that they've been incredibly successful and made enormous amounts of profit um and then basically that the, the criminal will wait for the victim to suggest cashing in um and at that point uh they'll say yes great let's let's go off let's sail off into the sun together and start this life we've been dreaming of um and at that point the um the victim will be uh, charged an enormous amount of money to withdraw um, the funds that they believe they have accumulated. Um, and, and often, you know, the, the gains that, yeah, let's say uh, they've been told they've accumulated $1 million of, of gains in crypto trading. Um, you know, if you believe a lot of the hype on social media, that's quite easy to do. You could do that over a short period of time. Um, so, so they are then asked to pay a fee of $100,000, say, uh, in order to receive the money. And of course they pay the money and everything goes silent, it's all gone. Um, so that's uh, a very sad story of course, but uh, perhaps perhaps the most interesting one that I could think of to tell you. Um, and one for your listeners to be very, very wary of. That is quite interesting in fact, because it, uh, it, it's, as you say, it's emotional manipulation, it's um, a personal relationship and uh, the promise of... Uh, easy money, easy riches, and all of that is based on human flaw, not necessarily technological flaw. But what legal recourse would a victim of that sort of scam have? If they approach you, Tom, help me, I've been scammed, I'm a, I'm a fattened pig, what would you say? <laughs> yes, it's very unfortunate terminology. Um, although it, it derives from China rather than uh, Romania. Um, what would I say? Well, Straight away, I would get the full facts, get an analytics report, identify where the money uh, has been sent to, um, you know, be it be it cash or uh, be it crypto. Um, at that point, I head straight to court, and the English courts have shown themselves very, very, very willing to be of assistance to to victims of these types of scams, particularly involving crypto. Um, I would I relatively quickly obtain freezing orders. Uh, and, and bankers trust orders that would allow me to to trace the the source of the funds um, and as in in one particularly famous case in the English courts the case of ion sciences um, a, a victim that had acted very very quickly um, was able to freeze assets that remained on I believe it was Kraken um, if not Kraken it was it was Coinbase it was certainly a, a household name crypto exchange they're able to freeze that money and obtain judgment for the return of that money, and they got their money back. Um, so, so that's that's a best case scenario, of course. Uh, however, you know, in some cases there'll be a lack of some some kind of information or perhaps a delay in acting, which renders it impossible. So it's not it's not all gravy, as they say. But the quicker you move, uh, the higher your chances of recovery. Right. So once you feel like you've been scammed, never mind the shame or never mind the hope that um, it's just going to fix itself. Just run to, to someone who knows and try to get your money back. Absolutely right. Right. Good. Now it's time to give another little thanks to H5 Strategies, an executive and political advisory group in Bucharest, specialized in Eastern Europe, Central Asia and Africa. And also worth mentioning, there's no interference from them in, in the content of the podcast. And uh, there will never be from any commercial partners or, um, of, of Reporter.London or, or ReporterCast. Now, back to the, back to the questions and the, the legal stuff. We, we were talking before and you said there was some sort of judicial decision in the UK that was quite unique and important, um, recognising that um, people in the UK or, or, or people in general have a legal claim on, on the crypto asset in their wallet or on their computer. Could you elaborate that a bit and say what it means you know, for, for, for people who hold crypto? Yeah, absolutely. So... Um... As I said, that there's been numerous uh, examples of um, the courts in this country uh, being of assistance to to, to victims of scams. Um, I think the the very first case I think would be the AA case um, where it was it was simply recognised um, that you know if it walks like a duck and talks like a duck and acts like a duck, it's a duck. Um, it, crypto didn't easily fit into any of the categories of property that that we have in, in English law, you know, it's not a real estate asset. 
Um, it's not a tangible good. It's not IP. Um, it's monetized code, which is very difficult, actually, for a textbook to get its head around um, at, at the fundamental legal level. However, the flexibility of our law meant that the judges, as I say, were able to use and apply the duck analogy. Um, and here we are. Uh, I mean, most recently, Professor Sarah Green, um, who again wrote, wrote the book on uh, the law of crypto um, and is a law commissioner in this country, uh, has recently made um, some proposals for uh, a new category of property that would recognise not just crypto, but but other, you know, new technologies that have yet to be born, um, you know, would fall within that category of, of effectively digital property. And, and that's recognising the importance of the services sector, you know, the online e-commerce, internet economy and the internet native economy. Um, and it is, it is, you know, sincerely hoped by by people such as me who are who are fans of, of UK PLC that that actually uh, this this legal step, these signals that, you know, Parliament, um, the judiciary and our financial sector are, are all sending is enough to um, make Britain a very, uh, a very pleasant and sort of um, appealing place to, to do business if you are part of the crypto sector. Um, at the moment, we are rather sitting on the sidelines uh, with a huge amount of activity going on in, in America. Um, but it does strike me that as the single European country with the largest amount of investment into our fintech sector, that actually, whilst it has been frustrating waiting for these developments, they do seem to be here now. And it does feel as though the tide is turning and actually Britain is likely to be a major player um, in the crypto sphere within the next few years. Well, I wouldn't mind that because um, God knows we we need economic growth. But one 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 problem with um, with crypto in general is that uh, so far the um, regulators and the government and so forth just don't seem to to be happy with the extent to which the source of crypto funds can be proven for the purposes of money laundering checks. And that sounds like a pretty major issue because there's just no way you're going to be allowed, you know, maybe in the future to buy a house or carry out a serious transaction with crypto unless you can just prove where you got it. And um, I just wonder, you know, I've heard a lot of talk about unhosted wallets, hosted wallets and so forth. And what, 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 what's the situation? What what can be done here? Um I referred a bit earlier to you know the wild teenage uh, adolescent years of crypto, um, and in my view they are they are over or almost over. I, I see now a time of, of middle age for crypto. Every time I speak to someone at a um, crypto exchange or you know a, a significant actor in the sector. Um, they seem to be people with enormous um, credentials uh, and experience at, at blue chip banks um, in terms of governance, in terms of risk management, in terms of you know investment and sort of capital requirements and the rest of it. I do feel like crypto has grown up very quickly as a result of the money that poured into it over the last few years. Um, and... Yeah, I think most people at the FCA or Treasury um, will have first heard of crypto in the context of, of ransomware um, and potentially money laundering. I believe, you know, certainly in my view, the first time it was ever really made famous was in relation to Silk Road, you know, the, the, the criminal marketplace where people were able to, to buy illegal goods using crypto as payment. Um, but I do see a change in that attitude. Um, the Treasury have indicated that they won't they won't impose sort of unreasonable um, unreasonable levels of regulation on unhosted wallets just because they are not hosted by you know a well known crypto exchange. Um, in terms of in terms of how can we gain legitimacy? Well, 
you know, the state is slowly moving and slowly getting its act together. But what it needs to do is what it does with the banking sector. You need to regulate the major players. You need to say, you know, in, in political terms, um, you know, for the right to, to receive all this money in fees. And believe me, Matty, it's a lot of money in fees. Um, you know, you have certain responsibilities uh, and we expect you to do X, Y, Z. And it's not really fair to to tarnish an entire um, sector uh, with with sort of a bad reputation if you're not asking anything of it. Um, I think the time has come. I think there are very sophisticated actors in the space now. And I believe that they will behave in the best interest of the market and, and consumers and the British public if, if they're allowed to do business. Right. OK, well things to look forward to them and uh, i'm going to ask you uh, an uncomfortable one now um, in your experience what jurisdictions in the world are the most permissive or, or lax in terms of anti-money laundering regulations for crypto i mean there's um it's it's the usual suspects i'm afraid there is of course you know there's the famous example of iran um using embargoed oil to mine bitcoin um, Russian crypto exchanges in, in Moscow are the centre, you know, the financial lungs of the international criminal industry of ransomware. Um, I think where else in terms of the real, the real worst case? I mean, North Korea is a major player in the, in the hacking industry, um, as you would expect. Uh, you know, it's, invo- it's, it's involved in lots of different kinds of crimes. Um, so why should why should it not get on the crypto bandwagon? Um, you know there are various offshore island jurisdictions as well that really that really are not interested in in policing any activity. They just want the income. Um, I won't name them, um, but right. but you probably know who they are. Okay, fair enough. So I suppose it's these offshores um, of offshore islands, as you put it, that uh, might be tricky for for our companies because i don't see licensed british banks doing business in north korea anytime soon (laughs) that's right i mean we need when when the authorities put up the regulatory perimeter um you know you you, they will be able to exclude uh, it is not beyond the wit of man to exclude these jurisdictions um and it is not you know basically when they put up their perimeter, it has to be appealing for people to stay within it. Um, but also, it it would be very easy uh, because of the nature of the blockchain to identify where people are, what jurisdictions are sort of receiving bad money, if you like, and uh, and yeah, they'll be able to hopefully filter filter the bad actors. That's interesting. Um, the big problem that arises with with the blockchain is that is. It's transparent but anonymous, but it's only anonymous if you want it to be. So, for example, uh, at one end of the spectrum, um, you can actually buy a uh, a wallet address which is your name. You know, you can choose to identify yourself. Um, also, it, within within you know a, a crypto institution's own commercial um, analysis, it could decide that actually it, it wants to collect you know a significant amount of kyc on every person that that operates that opens an account with them uh, and the same for anyone that their client wants to send funds to it is absolutely possible for that to happen um, it only has been anonymous to the extent that it has been in the past because of a lack of regulation and a lack of engagement so there's really no reason why these these classic sort of risks for for money laundering um, should should persist in the future. Right, and just to be clear, KYC means uh, um, know your customer. So things like uh, things like uh, address, source of funds, occupation, and so forth. Absolutely, that's right. I'm not talking about fried chicken. Um, it's it's all about the sorts of documents that, frankly, someone like me or someone in the police force needs uh, when they're trying to help someone. Okay, good, good. Next chapter. Now you knew we we would be coming to this. Tory politics. Uh, you're a Tory. You're in the party. You're a, you're a regular at the Carlton Club, which is an exquisite uh, an exquisite club among among really nice clubs in in that part of town. Anyway, 
And um, I suppose at this point we could say pretty uh, certainly that Liz Truss is going to be the next Prime Minister, although you never really know. But, um, um, you know, I'm not going to be a bad sport and ask you how you voted. Thank goodness. Um, more broadly, though. Um, it feels to me there's a there's a fundamental split on the right, just the same as on the left, between the manager type of politician and the visionary type of politician, as Lord Frost has put it. And uh, we have managers with uh, Rishi Sunak and Keir Starmer and visionaries with um, Liz Truss, Boris Johnson and whatever you think of him as a politician, also Jeremy Corbyn. Now, do you agree with this? And... Um, is is a visionary really the, the the kind of leader that the country needs? It's quite quite interesting. Um, so, so I suppose what Lord Frost is is talking about really is um, the distinction between sort of charismatic individuals and you know everyone else. Effectively, um, he is right in that you do need someone to articulate a full a full view um, of politics. I mean, it, you know, recently we've had, you know, the Brexit event um, and that is very much a, a, turning of, a turning of the page and starting of a new chapter. So one would say, actually, someone needs to take a step back, look at the country from a very strategic geopolitical perspective and work out what can be done differently. Um, and I suppose, I suppose that's what, what he means when he says visionary. He's talking about someone who can articulate a full sort of place, place for Britain in the world and a way of running our economy, you know, effectively, effectively a new version of a, a social contract. Um, sometimes that is necessary and sometimes that is not. I think you probably, I think someone once said this about... Um, reform in the NHS you know you can propose all the reforms that you want there has to be a period of stability in order to consolidate and enact um, so it won't always be a case that we need a firebrand on a soapbox or whatever the social media modern day equivalent of that is um, but I do I do think that yeah in, in times of crisis things matter more to people sort of leaders and their narratives are very important in giving people hope uh, and things to look forward to um, and to justify you know actions if they're going to be painful or not so so yeah I suppose I suppose I would agree with that I mean one thing that we've always had in, in this country is, is cabinet um, is cabinet uh, government and I do think that history tells you the fewer the people that are effectively enfranchised in that cabinet the worse it goes so I think that it is important to have what David Cameron used to refer to as a deep bench, you know, a lot of talent in government, because that will only improve uh, the outcome and that will only improve um, the work that the state can do in any particular parliament. Right, right. OK. And um, another thing I wanted to ask is about uh, implementation, because there's no shortage of, uh, of visions and proposals and uh, Boris Johnson was um, full of, of ideas and, and optimism and proposals, but he didn't get most of them over the line. He got a good few, but not most of them. And uh, it's all well and good to blame the woke academia or, you know, the obstructive deep state or whatever, you know, whatever the, the cliche might be. But in the end, you had Tony Blair and Lady Thatcher who had vision and were able to implement it. And... Um, why why does it seem so hard these days to 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 bring about changes? Wow, that is this we're getting really deep here. That's a big one, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Um well God. So I suppose there's two bits to that. The first is there is this ubiquitous feeling that th nothing's happening for the better. Um and I do I was always told never bash the media to the media, um, but I, I, and that's probably a very wise rule. But I do think that there's a media business model these days. Um, you know, angry people click more, as they say, uh, and 
you know, catastrophizing again draws attention to things. And I think that that derives from the new nature of the media, you know, the internet, uh, social media. I mean, the importance of Twitter now to journalists um, cannot be overstated. Um, and I do think that, you know, from around 2015, 2016, which coincides with various political events, um, the, the, the pitch and tone of the media has only gone one way. Um, and I do think that that will always certainly make people think that there is no progress. In terms of implementing visions, I mean, you're absolutely right. Boris had this, this enormous vision, um, which would have taken a, a long time to implement, I think. He's been... He's had his time cut short, um, but you know much, Tony Blair. His his vision was more education um, of of one certain kind will absolutely boom the economy. Basically, and I'm from Nottingham. I can tell you that the money that was pumped into the universities in Nottingham brought about an enormous positive change um, in in life in in that town in the Midlands. Um, you know, it, I'm not saying I agree with Tony Blair's policy. In fact, I, I disagree with it. You know, in terms of some of the ambitions that he had, but that took a really long time to implement. Um, and Boris's ambition was effectively, certainly as, as I took it, um, to, to be to to rely less on the southeast of this country and try and redistribute opportunity so that people in the north of this country and in the Midlands. Um, had a better shot at things but but not just that you know deprived sort of coastal areas as well so I suppose I'm kind of as as I'm sort of articulating what he's doing uh, what his ambition was I'm starting to realize just how ambitious he was um, I mean how many years would it have taken to implement that um, sadly more than he got the chance to do but I can see places like Ipswich uh, places like Teesside you know Darlington around there I can see how he has had an enormous positive impact uh, even in a short time um, so yeah perhaps perhaps Boris has achieved more in a short period of time than we've given him credit for well let, let's say he has um, but uh, also uh, an, another question about about the Tories now um, the polls are not looking that great and you know you're on the inside of the party you, you have meetings and stuff and um, I just want to ask, is the party as a whole aware of, of the uphill battle it faces in the coming election, which is not that far into the future? And um, does this make the current leadership contest a bit self-indulgent? Is it, is it the case that a public battle such as this might, might be detrimental, actually, to the Tories? Well, I might have received an ABE, but I'm still a private citizen. So these are these are <laughs> these are my views as a fan, uh, rather than um, someone who's authorised to speak on behalf of the party. Um, but I would I would say um, it is it is to be expected that, given the macroeconomic and macro political background of today, that the party government would be down in the polls. Um, is it self-indulgent or some way negative to have a leadership competition now? Um, I mean, there's a significant number of people uh, inside and outside of the party that wanted a change in leadership. And there is only one way to affect that change. It's, it's via the rules. Um, and, you know, the, the only question really, once you've accepted that premise, is... How long does it go on for? How much uh, scrutiny do you want to um, subject the uh, candidates to? And I think, you know, every time I, I now read a, a news report uh, from the from the political media about the competition, um, their main comment seems to be, it feels like it's been going on forever. Well, good. You know, I mean, it, these, these are the same people that would be uh, complaining of not enough scrutiny. Um, if, if we were doing anything different. So I don't know. I mean, it wouldn't have been my choice of timing, Matty, but, uh, you know, I'm not the one who made it all happen. No, fair enough. The only, fair the enough. only thing that, uh, the only thing that I say is that it is good that the candidates are being subjected to such a public, you know, such a public competition and such high levels of scrutiny. Right. Well, fair enough. That was very diplomatic. Um, 
Anyway, one last shout to our sponsor at H5 Strategies, an executive and political advisory group in, in Bucharest, specializing in Eastern Europe, Central Asia and Africa. And finally, fi the final question, um, we're running a bit over time anyway. Um, thanks again for, for your patience. Kemi Badenok, I, I was hugely, hugely impressed, uh, both by her style and the intellectual rigor and... Um, the directness and um, the um, sort of uh, thick skin and and uh, lack of lack of fear really on her part and I just wanted to to ask is is she huge with with the Tories now is is everybody banding around her as the next prime minister or what's happening the the next after the the current one obviously yes absolutely you prematurely unseated the next leader. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. She captured the imagination of an enormous number of people in this country, inside and out of the party. Um, she's a very promising, intelligent lady. Um, and I sincerely, sincerely hope and believe that she has a very bright future ahead of her. And I would be, I would be shocked if she wasn't given a, a, a prominent role in the next government. Right, so we'll, we'll be seeing a lot more from her then. Let's hope so. Right. Well, on that note... Tom Spiller, thanks very much. Very kind of you. Thank you for having me. All the best. <laughs>